Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, in today's program, you want to revisit some research that was done many years ago. It was the kind of research that evolutionists generally use to support their claims that genetic mutations are what drive evolution, improving the species. Yes, Scott. But as we gain more and more knowledge about the complexity of the genetics of living things, that is, at the molecular level, Evolutionists are having greater difficulty defending the proposal that mutations are responsible for the advancements in structures and abilities in subsequent generations. Structures and abilities that result in new and improved kinds of organisms. And so we're going to go back and look at some research done 10 years ago, noting that since that time, the problem is only growing worse for the theory of evolution. In other words, things are not getting better the more we learn, at least for them. We're going to consider an article published in 2013 in the April issue of Discover Magazine titled Double-Edged Genes. Now, Discover Magazine isn't exactly a creation publication, is it? <laughs> no, not at all. But it often you know, has excellent reports on new discoveries, thus Discover Magazine. And if you can filter through what are generally some pretty heavy-handed evolutionary assumptions, there is often some good information in it. So anyway, Karen read this article, and she thought it was fascinating. And knowing my special interest in biochemistry and genetics, especially as they relate to evolutionary theory and creation, she said I'd probably like to read it, maybe even do a program about it. And she was right on. This information is perfectly suited for the program. She does a lot more reading than I do. Not scientific reading, but reading in general. And she'll come across things for us every once in a while. So anyway, after listening to the program today, if anyone else is interested in reading the article for themselves, there's a lot more information in it than I can cover today. The article is titled again, Double-Edged Genes. It's written by Gary Tobbs, and it's in the April 2013 issue of Discover Magazine. Now, this research we're going to consider today has been going on for over 50 years, but it's really just been in the last few years that some very interesting empirical data has been generated, which has given us some good evidence that an unusual and very rare genetic mutation has the effect of making a person much less susceptible to cancer. Hmm. Well, that would certainly sound like the type of mutation that evolutionists would point to as evidence for beneficial mutations that improve the species and thus cause it to evolve into better, stronger new species. Well, you're right about that. And let's make sure that we understand what we're talking about. A good mutation would be something that would enable an organism to be healthier, to live longer, maybe avoid a particular disease like what we're talking about here. Of course, most mutations are considered to be bad mutations. They lead to poorer health. Maybe they even lead to death. But you know, Scott, most mutations aren't necessarily good or bad. Natural selection is essentially blind hmm. to seeing whatever this mutation might be. That's really most mutations. And so evolution would tout any, though few, positive mutation, beneficial mutation, as something that leads to evolution, leads to improving the species. So in this case, this particular genetic mutation sounds like it's pretty beneficial. And you know what? It even gets better, Scott. 
The numbers seem to indicate that this mutation also prevents diabetes. <laughs> well, I never thought I'd hear myself say, may I have that mutation, please? <laughs> well, yes, Scott, but you might want to hold off on that request until you get all the information. Because, as is usually the case, if something sounds too good to be true... It probably is. As you might expect, there's a catch to this mutation. Okay, I'm beginning to sense that the article was alluding to that idea. The title was Double-Edged Genes, right? You got it. This mutation also causes dwarfism. Ah, well, okay, being a little short doesn't sound so bad if it could help you bypass some of these diseases we're talking <laughs> about. I mean, how small are these people? Well, they are dwarves. Many of them are less than three feet tall. Wow. <laughs> even as full-grown adults. Well, Dr. Scripture, this is new information for me. I'd never heard that dwarves were immune to cancer or diabetes. Well, that's the interesting thing. Not all dwarves have the same genetic mutation. In other words, there are several genetic variables that can lead to being very small. <laughs> Most of them have something to do with a deficiency in growth hormone. But in this case, it was discovered that the mutation was not in the growth hormone itself, or even in the levels of growth hormone. The defect is in the growth hormone receptor. So even though these people have plenty, in fact, they have high levels of growth hormone. Hmm. Their cells can't respond to it. Okay. Thus, their appearance is no different than a person who does not have growth hormone or has low levels of it, or even has a defected or mutated form of the hormone. Well, Dr. Scripture, like your wife says, I mean, this sounds really fascinating, and I can't wait to hear more. Okay, well, the defect is called Loran syndrome. It's named after an Israeli doctor named Svi Loran. He treated various hormone disorders, and he was the one who identified the cause of this very rare type of dwarfism way back in the 1960s. But the important research linking Loran syndrome to cancer and diabetes resistance was carried out much more recently by two scientists, one named Jamie Guevara Aguirre and the other named Arlen Rosenblum. Okay, Scott, let's test your knowledge of scientific nomenclature. These doctors did research on growth hormones, the key word being hormones. What kind of doctors would they be? Uh, hormonologists? <laughs> <laughs> no, not hormonologists. They are doctors that deal with hormones, and actually it's a much bigger idea than just hormones. There's a whole system in our body called the endocrine system, where you've got the production of hormones and the response of the organs that sense those hormones. And in So this my case, second guess is then endocrinologist. Oh, really? <laughs> Very good. It is. They are endocrinologists. And the study of the endocrine system is a very, very complex and important study because we've got lots of problems. For example, diabetes and this growth hormone system, that's one thing. But there are a lot of different issues. For example, in sports nowadays, mm. you hear about human growth hormone all the time. Yeah. That's a part of the endocrine system. So anyway, the endocrine system is very, very complex. I mean, it requires not only a very, very complex hormone, and hormones are proteins, and they're going to be all kinds of different shapes and sizes. These hormones to work require a receptor, as we've mentioned. That's what this Loran syndrome is all about. It's about a receptor that isn't correctly identifying the growth hormone. 
These receptors are very, very complex proteins that have particular shapes that are basically residing in the cell membranes. And when the proper hormone comes along and that receptor recognizes it, it binds the hormone and then sends some signal inside the cell by either allowing the hormone into the cell or producing some other signal inside the cell. And thus the effect of the hormone gets sent to the cell, the cell then responds and so on and so forth. It's an amazingly complex system. And of course, we've got hundreds of different types of hormones that the endocrine system is responding to. So anyway, these two endocrinologists have tracked a population of Ecuadorians with this rare genetic defect, which affects the body's response to the specific hormone we call growth hormone. Now, Dr. Guevara Aguirre is Ecuadorian himself. And he is the one who discovered a population of dwarves who live in a remote part of South Ecuador. And as he studied them for over 20 years, he would discuss their histories and read their records. And it slowly dawned on him that none of them got cancer. And later he also observed the same for diabetes. But you know, Scott, an anecdotal observation like that doesn't amount to real science. You have to do the numbers. That means you need empirical data to support observations like that. So he and another scientist named Walter Longo, who was interested in longevity research, got together and did statistical population studies on these people that lived in South Ecuador. So now let me read a little from the article to make sure I get the details right. Quote, they secured a small grant to do a rigorous investigation comparing cancer rates in the Loran syndrome patients with those of their relatives of normal height. After five years of fieldwork, laboratory experiments, and analysis, they reported in February of 2011 that of 99 Loran syndrome cases, only one case of cancer existed on record, and that patient had survived. Hmm. By comparison of more than 1,000 relatives of Loran patients who died during the study, one in five succumbed to cancer. Hmm. Now, that's an astounding and very statistically significant difference. Let me re keep reading from the article here. They also reported that of the 99 Loran patients they studied, none had diabetes, despite the prevalence of obesity in the group. In contrast, among the patient's relatives, 5% of deaths were from diabetes. That is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so, Dr. Scripture, you said this research shed some light on the fallacy of an evolutionary concept, but so far, it seems like everything we're learning about this mutation would fit the model of survival of the fittest. Well, Scott, you've hit it right on the head. It does fit that proposal of mutations rarely being beneficial, but sometimes one is. And when they are, natural selection will favor that mutation in a species, and therefore it evolves and improves. But a beneficial or harmful mutation is not the issue here. To move, so to speak, one organism to the next organism and have it be more and more complex, evolution needs added information. And this mutation that we're talking about, this Loran syndrome, is a classic example of the loss of information serendipitously being beneficial for certain environmental or genetic hazards. So... Even though it's beneficial for these dwarves in the sense that they're not going to get cancer, probably, or diabetes, they have lost information. And by that, we mean that receptor is defective. 
the question for evolution to answer is, where did this amazing receptor ever come from in the first place? The information in the gene required to then make this three-dimensional protein that specifically matches up with the growth hormone is a fantastic piece of information. And the idea that that accidentally could just pop up out of nowhere <laughs> is unexplainable by the theory of evolution. It's obvious that once that information was there, a mutation causing that receptor to no longer function is easy to explain. I mean, <laughs> mutations happen. Information gets corrupted. And that is what has happened in the case of these Laurent syndrome dwarfs. So I just want to point out that from the creation perspective, God making man with all this fantastic, complex, perfect genetic information, and then it mutating is what we see all around us. And this is an example. The idea of information popping up out of nowhere, producing new abilities, that we don't see. And yet that's what evolution has to be able to explain. Okay, Dr. Scripture, for anyone who would like to read the article for themselves, what is it again? Double-Edged Genes by Gary Tobbs, and it's in the April 23 13 issue of Discover Magazine. It's an interesting article. It's a wonderful article on man's ability to discover and research how we're made. And yet, we're never going to come to the point where we understand all the complexity. Only God can do that. This is how the Bible puts it in Job chapter 11, verse 7. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are high as the heavens. What can you do? And deeper than Sheol. What can you know? And that's not what I say. That's what scripture says.